Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with Betsy Pandora from the Short North Alliance about Highball Halloween. It's an annual event coming up later this month. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS-10TV, Tracy Townsend covers a number of topics, including the battle over abortion rights in Ohio, efforts to get people registered for the upcoming election, including a look at an issue that will go before voters in the Pickerington School District, and an affordable housing fight going on in Bexley. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with Dwayne Casares, CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. He has an update on a big project they've started on the east side of Columbus. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, Betsy Pandora, who is the executive director of the Short North Alliance. How are you? I'm doing just fine, Dave. It's great to be here with you. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what the Short North Alliance is. Alliance is a nonprofit that supports and provides services to businesses, community members, uh, and visitors here in the Short North Arts District. Okay, and there's a specific event coming up we're going to talk about, but before we get to that, you know, this is kind of like the, the breakout year post-pandemic. How has it been for the Short North? It really has been such a year of recovery, I would say, for our entire business community. It's been so exciting to see people returning again in large numbers to our community. Um, our community is, um, you know, certainly one where um, uh, just over 15,000 people call home. Um, but typically we would see millions of annual visitors. And, and I don't know that we are fully at pre-pandemic levels yet, but we are certainly inching our way back to that. Has it stayed intact better than you thought it might when we were in the throes of the pandemic? It's interesting. Um, You know, in March of 2021, um, we had about 60 ground floor commercial vacancies on High Street in the Short North. Um, And today it's just under 20. So I think we've really seen a strong recovery and um, and we've, you know, truly not seen a, a substantial loss of, of businesses in our community. I think a lot of the maybe vacancy that we were experiencing over the last two years had more to do with people sort of waiting and um, maybe contemplating their next move and, and maybe not being keen to lease something as they as immediately uh, in a time of uncertainty. Um, but it seems like a lot of that is resolved. That's great. And you've got some big things going on uh, with a big development at the North Market and other areas as well. Absolutely. The, you know, the entire city and region just continues to grow, certainly with announcements like Intel. Um, you know, there is no limit, I think, on all of the great things ahead for Columbus and, and certainly an area, um, you know, central in our city, like the Short North Arts District and the surrounding communities um, will continue to see growth and excitement. So the main reason we're talking <laughs> is uh, Highball Halloween, which is coming up on Saturday, October 22nd from 2 to 11. What is that? elaborate costume party that is held right here in the Short North Arts District. We are celebrating its 15th anniversary year and finally I am so excited to share after two years of uh, the pandemic it is returning to the streets of our community as a live in-person street festival um, which is really what everybody loves about Highball. Uh, People love to see people in costume. Of course sort of the signature of the event is our costume 
costume couture fashion show um, where we um, select some of the best design talent from around Columbus and the region to create over-the-top couture-style Halloween costumes that absolutely um, um, are forthcoming far and wide to see. Um, this year we're beginning the event a little bit earlier because we wanted to be even more inclusive in some of the programming that we're offering to appeal to more. And um, we are uh, bringing children's programming as well as pet-friendly programming to the streets um, this year with the added earlier hours for Highball. When you say it's a street event, we're talking about, I mentioned the North Market a minute ago, and it's not far from there, just a couple of blocks north of there on the edge of Goodale Park. That's right. Um, we will close down all of Goodale from High Street to Denison, um, as well as Park Street from Russell to Swan. Um, and the event itself will take place at the confluence of Goodale and Park Street. Um, but the main entry gate really is at High Street there at Goodale. So I'm guessing then in the afternoon, since it starts at 2, you're talking about an environment where there's going to be kids and pets dressed up on the street in that area. Absolutely. So everything kicks off at 2 o'clock. Um, uh, Franklin County Auditor Michael Cinziano has sponsored our um, pet costume contest that will be at 5.30 p.m. that afternoon. So um, whether it's a dog, a cat, an iguana, um, <laughs> whatever you have, you're welcome to bring in their best Halloween costume to be a part of the contest. Um, earlier that day at 3.30 p.m., um, is our children's costume contest. So um, uh, children are able to um, dress up and be a part of the costume parade across the big stage. Um, and there's lots of fun programming that will take place all throughout uh, the area surrounding the event um, that would have appeal to families and kids and pets. Um, uh, anybody that attends during those early hours will be able to get free Jenny's ice cream while supplies last and free toys from Bark um, for uh, their furry or not-so-furry friends. That's outstanding. Talking with Betsy Pandora, Executive Director of the Short North Alliance, kind of the main event, once the lights go down, this is sort of an, a unique blend of Columbus's fashion industry and Halloween, right? Absolutely. So, um, you know, the event, I think, has long grown in excitement and its reputation for showcasing just how uh, creative of the fashion industry that we have here in Columbus. Columbus has the third largest fashion and design workforce um, nationally. And um, folks who participate in the Costume Couture Fashion Show at Highball um, uh, absolutely enjoy it because it is something that really allows for them to stretch uh, and expand their design creativity in ways that maybe they don't get to do otherwise. So if somebody is at this event at 9 o'clock that night who's never been to it before, what's going on? What, what are they going to see that maybe they've never seen before? Um, you will be able to experience all kinds of great music this year. We have a kind of a whole day of programming um, uh, and evening of programming. Uh, the Nacho Street Bands, which is the Nationwide Children's Hospital um, uh, uh, big band, will be performing earlier in the day. Um, a new Bass Express Band will be performing, um, as well as the Deep Tones. And um, Virginia West uh, with the West family will be um, co-hosting and emceeing the event. Um, the public costume contest will be around 8 o'clock where any member of the public can enter up to five different categories um, to win cash prizes. Um, and then the evening will conclude with that huge fashion show, um, the Costume Couture Fashion Show. How many people do you think will be involved in this from beginning to end, Betsy? 
you know, it's really, um, uh, you know, an exciting thing for us to anticipate that. Um, you know, what we've seen across the Columbus landscape this year is that events and festivals have been probably better attended than they've ever been because people have missed them so much. Um, uh, so a typical night of hype ball would see between 10 and 15,000 people. Um, so we're, we're certainly anticipating a crowd like that. We are always excited about how much people in our community just enjoy being together. And so we're really thrilled to be able to have it return, um, to have it return during a milestone year, like a 15th anniversary. And, I, I, you know, it means so much, I think, to everybody to be doing a live events like this again. And how do people get involved? What do they do? All of the information is available at highballcolumbus.org. Um, we have advanced purchase ticket sales available right now through the website. Um, general admission tickets um, during advanced pre-sale period um, are uh, $15. Um, and then uh, uh, through event day, the price increases to $25. Um, we also have an incredible VIP experience this year. Um, it is the Condado um, Highball VIP, and um, you will be able to have food from Condado, great views of the stage, um, and all kinds of uh, other fun freebies and giveaways in this year's VIP tent. That's a $70 ticket um, that also comes with some uh, beverages um, during pre-sale, and that will increase to $85 um, up through event day. Um, kids under two are free. Um, kids under uh, $12 or $5 unless you have the Highballer Family Fun Package, um, which includes general admission tickets for two adults, is uh, free entry for as many kids as um, uh, come with that, and um, drink tickets as well. Talking with Betsy Pandora, Executive Director of the Short North Alliance, anything else you'd like to add? Uh, all of the information, like I said, is available at highballcolumbus.org. Um, uh, ticket prices increase after October 13th, um, but they are also available um, uh, at our gates, so we recommend um, getting them in advance because um, you'll be able to get in the site that much quicker. Great. Highball Halloween. It's Saturday, October 22nd. Uh, Betsy, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Dave. Each year, Ohioans are injured and killed in train car accidents that could have been avoided with properly functioning gates and flashing lights. Facts show that gates and lights together prevent more train car accidents than stop signs or crossbucks alone. How can you help? Approach all crossings with caution and report bad railroad crossings at angelsontrack.org. That's angelsontrack.org. Because bad crossings kill good drivers. Sponsored by Angels on Track, aired by OAB and this station. When times get dark, we can't see the help that's all around us. Maybe you're not sure how you'll make rent. Or you lost your job. When you don't know where to turn, let 211 be your guiding light. Our guides are ready to connect you with the help you need. 211, how can I help you? Call or visit 211.org. 211, get connected, get help. A message from United Way and the Ad Council. We have the world at our fingertips. Inspiration in our touch and power in our hands. Right here. In our hands, we have the power to save a life. If you see a teen or adult suddenly collapse, call 911 and push hard and fast in the center of the chest. The power is in your hands. 
Anthem Foundation is the proud national supporter of the American Heart Association's hands-only CPR campaign. Unused prescription opioid pain medicines can spell trouble. Safely dispose of opioids before they can hurt your family. Find a drug take-back option such as medicine drop boxes. Visit www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. A quick note about today's program. Tracy starts out with a segment about the battle over abortion rights in Ohio. This was recorded before Friday's decision by a judge in Hamilton County to make permanent his restraining order that knocks down the heartbeat law in Ohio. At the time of this recording, the temporary restraining order was in effect, which essentially had the law in the same position that it's in since the permanent ban placed by the judge. So comments made by Right to Life and pro-choice advocates in this segment remain valid. We thank you for joining us on this Sunday morning for Face of the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. The lawsuit that led to this hold focuses on Senate Bill 23, which is the heartbeat law. It went into effect right after Roe v. Wade was overturned over the summer. 10TV's Brittany Bailey takes a deeper look into the court documents and the arguments, claims, and affidavits that got us here. In 42 pages of affidavits, healthcare workers shared stories about what they've seen since the heartbeat bill went into effect. One clinic medical director said it caused mass confusion and panic, and some threatened to hurt themselves because they were so distraught. She described three patients threatening suicide, one who said she would try to end her pregnancy by drinking bleach, and another asking how much vitamin C it would take to terminate a pregnancy. We also learned more about some of the patients, more than 30 described in the documents who wanted to get abortions but were denied under the new law. A doctor from another clinic described a high school senior who suffered from hyperemesis or excessive vomiting. She wanted to end her pregnancy, was turned away, and ended up in the hospital on suicide watch. Another patient was so upset she said, what do you want me to do, throw myself down the steps? This doctor also described two patients who had ectopic pregnancies, which are exempted under the law, but the doctors were afraid to treat them without being sure there was no intrauterine pregnancy. In one case, the patient's fallopian tube ruptured. A Southwest Ohio 16-year-old got pregnant after being sexually assaulted by a family member and was forced to travel to Indiana for an abortion. The law enforcement agency involved then also had to travel to that Indiana clinic to collect samples for the case. And a doctor at Planned Parenthood of Greater Ohio described another minor who was sexually assaulted by a family member having to travel to Michigan for an abortion. Those are all just some of the reasons the judge put a hold on this law, writing that SB 23 clearly discriminates against pregnant women and places an enormous burden on them to secure safe and effective health care such that it violates Ohio's Equal Protection and Benefit Clause and is therefore unconstitutional. That was Brittany Bailey reporting for us. Abortions in the state are legal up to 20 weeks of pregnancy. We do have reaction to this from both sides of the issue. Here it is. This is Kelly Copeland, executive director of Pro-Choice Ohio. And again, she's speaking specifically about the temporary restraining order that was put into effect 
that now has become permanent, which essentially keeps the law in place as it was when she was speaking about the temporary restraining order. As uh, viewers know, people have been forced to flee the state to access abortion care, but still others who have not been able to leave the state have been put in a terrible situation of having to continue pregnancies against their will. And so at least for this time, we know that people are able to get the care that they need here in Ohio. This is Lizzie Whitmarsh, Communications Director for Ohio Right to Life. I mean, to be honest, it's absolutely devastating. In my uh, opinion, it was an an unjust uh, decision that was made, but it's definitely not shocking. We knew that um, abortion advocates would definitely do anything within their power to have abortion continue in our state. And we also knew that they were shopping purposely for the most friendly judge, which is exactly when they went to the judge in Hamilton County. Um, It's pretty clear that he had his decision made even before hearing the case. Police are getting closer to finding the person who called in fake active shooter alerts to several Ohio schools. Investigators say at least four of the eight phony 911 calls came from the same person. The caller identified himself as James Park and gave different phone numbers. One of those numbers took investigators to California another to Florida. The FBI says they are working with local law enforcement. And right now, Ohio lawmakers are pushing to increase the penalty for swatting. A bill introduced by State Senator Andrew Brenner, a Republican from Delaware, would make swatting a third-degree felony. If someone is hurt in the response, then it could become a first-degree felony. The bill would also allow a court to order the person who made the call reimburse law enforcement for the expense of the response. We talk with Senator Brenner about this bill. Uh, This is happening and it's happening all the more. Uh, We just had the case in Lincoln County uh, where it happened. You know, this is something that for whatever reason is expanding. My guess is it's social media and specifically people on, you know, platforms like TikTok are, are using those platforms to try to promote themselves and they don't really care about the consequences that may happen to others. Um, And so that's why uh, the idea of of increasing the penalty so that not only law enforcement, but elected officials and others can make a point that, hey, look, if you do this, you can go to jail and you can go to jail for a long time. Another city is asking the governor to try to land federal funding for expanding Amtrak in our state. Cincinnati's city council is asking Governor DeWine to participate in the Federal Railroad Administration's program that identifies new routes. The state wants to add Amtrak service from Cincinnati to Cleveland by way of Columbus. Both Cleveland and Columbus City Council members have previously voted to support the idea. Amtrak currently serves both Cleveland and Cincinnati, but the trains only arrive in the overnight hour. Columbus is one of the largest cities in the country without regularly scheduled passenger trains. The proposal includes three daily round trips across the state. The November election, we are highlighting a school issue that might be on your ballot. Overall, classroom size is way too big. For the first time, 10TV is hearing from teachers within the Pickerington School District why they say they need your help to alleviate class size issues. And getting Columbus to the polls, the unexpected place you are going to find voter signups right now. 
Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Tom and Levi. Tom is the smartest man I know. He's been a professor at two major universities, been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, he told me that he was having um, problems in his classes. I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. And he was telling them that he was doing it as a favor to them. But I think in reality, he just wanted to get out of there. Um, I was really starting to worry because I saw something was wrong. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives. But he was there beside me. And my love for him was just immense. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash stories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Hey, this is Grace Gostet. I'm a singer-songwriter, and like many, I've been traumatized by years of bullying. You're ugly. You're stupid. You're gay. You're worthless. Bullying causes real harm and can result in severe long-term depression, anxiety, addiction, and even self-harm. I created the Black Box Project for anyone who has ever felt different for any reason. Go to theblackboxproject.org to help you take the first step to healing. You are not alone. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Two debates are confirmed this month in the race to represent Ohio in the United States Senate. Candidates Tim Ryan and J.D. Vance will face off October 10th in Cleveland and October 17th at Youngstown's historic Stambaugh Auditorium. The voter registration on October 11th, that's the deadline so far, more than 8 million people are registered, but there's an effort underway to sign up more people. And it's happening in barbershops, including a cut above the rest in Columbus. The mission is to educate Ohioans and get them to register to vote. The idea is simple. It is a time-honored tradition to talk politics at the barbershop or the beauty salon, right? But if you're not registered to vote, then talk is all you can do. And so what Al and other uh, barbers around the state and and beauticians around the state are doing is simply putting up one of these posters, setting up a table where we've got voter registration forms, information about how to become a poll worker. As you can see right here, we've got QR codes. You can do it right there on the Internet. And the reminder is that October 11th is the voter registration deadline. If you're not registered, you can't vote. And so we want to see how many people we can get registered to vote between now and October 11th. As a barber, I think it's very important that um, they see a person like me that can influence others to get out and participate in the voting process and being able to um, engage in their own communities across the city. And I think it definitely helps with education, the barbers, educating the barbers to to be engaged in this process so they can talk to their customers, not not trying to persuade people to vote who who they want, but just understanding how the voting process works. And um, this initiative that we have is very good for even our young people to start seeing that this even exists and the importance of being involved in um, voting and being being involved in democracy and helping your community um, with registering to vote. 
After registration, the next phase, making sure everyone knows their polling location. You can find that information at 10tv.com slash featured links. Here are a few key election dates we really want you to keep in mind. Military and overseas voting begins on September 23rd. It began. And then again, voters must be registered by October 11th, the day before absentee and early in-person voting begins. November 8th is election day. And on that day, you can ride CODA for free. The goal is to make it easier for people to get to the polls. There will be several school levies on the ballot in November, including one for Pickerington voters. The levy will provide more money to build new schools. 10TV's Brian Somerville talked with teachers in that district about the overcrowding issue. Every action has its equal opposite reaction. The same is said for decisions. And in the Pickerington School District. Overall, classroom size is way too big. Decisions made have stacked up reactions that teachers say are hurting students' education. We definitely need some extra space. Heather Perano teaches chemistry at Pickerington Central High School. Anne Lanier. We don't have any more room to bring, to, to put them. A first grade teacher at Tollgate Elementary. Now, both of these schools in the district have been labeled as exceeding capacity when it comes to the number of students. If you combine our elementary school with a middle school, we are the size of a high school or junior high. Right now at Tollgate, capacity is 700. Currently, there are 900 students. Last year, well, I had 20, 28, 29 kids in our classes, 30 kids in some classes. That's I've never, ever seen that in my career, ever. In Perano's chemistry room, 32 students. It is hard to get the one-on-one -on -one attention you need um, as a teacher in a classroom like that, where you have that many students. The district has been dealing with a growing population for years, but levies in 2020 and 2021 were both failed by voters. And as time goes on, the district likens this problem to a never-ending game of dominoes or Jenga in this case. Either way, the point is about a chain reaction. Pickerington Education Association President Brad Harris graduated from Pickerington. So where I'm sitting now actually used to be lockers. The wrestling champ in 96 remembers the need for two high schools and creating Central and North, where he now teaches and battles overcrowding every day. But the reality is that even if there is a willingness to make smaller class sizes, we have nowhere to put the extra classrooms. I mean, there just, there just is no space. A crucial need. I think we're failing our kids, but we're failing our community. Playing out in many classrooms. It is crucial. I think we're, we're reaching that critical mass. We really, really can't take much more. And um, for the benefit of our student over and over and over, um, it's, it's time. District wide. So teachers tell me, it's overcrowding, right? But it's not just overcrowding because that touches many other issues like pickup, drop-off, bus routes, lunch, tardiness, behavioral issues. But what sets all of those issues into motion? Overcrowding. A bond put on November's ballot looks to help, one that the district says will not increase taxes, will build a new junior high school, provide renovations to other buildings, and add classrooms to both North and Central high schools. 
I'm afraid about what might happen if it doesn't pass. Lanier has taught for 20 years. Perano, 24. If the bond fails, they say the district's plans for remote learning, modular buildings, and redistricting is not ideal for students. That levy needs to be on everybody's mind. Hoping on November 8th to take action and put a stop to that reaction that teachers say is crippling their district and its students. In Pickerington, Bryant Somerville, 10 TV News. And according to the union, opponents of bonds in the past have cited a dislike for a growing population and raising property taxes. This year, the district says the proposal is about $5 million less than what was previously voted down because of the rise in home values. All right, in November, Columbus voters will weigh in on a bond issue that could bring more affordable housing options. The $1.5 billion package includes money for recreation and parks and public utilities. $200 million would go to expanding affordable housing. In Bexley, there's a battle brewing over an affordable place to live. Bexley is one of the more expensive parts of town, with some homes exceeding half a million dollars. The community wants to build affordable housing, but it's getting pushback in court. 10TV's Kevin Landers explains why the city is appealing a lawsuit trying to stop it. Affluent Bexley is a city out of reach for most, as the company attempting to build affordable housing here. Bexley has always been a place where families can start out and build, you know, lives, build futures for they, them and their children. Um, and that's that's gone away uh, unless you can afford a four hundred or five hundred thousand dollar house. You don't have access to Bexley anymore. The city is looking to change that. The community builders wants to build affordable housing on this property on Cassidy Avenue and this property on Livingston Avenue. Artist renderings show that both projects could look like this. Each is three stories with more than 20 units and would include all income levels. It's folks who make, um, you know, $60,000 or less. But a lawsuit filed by Leah Turner has put the project on pause, claiming the city's zoning laws don't allow the development. The city is appealing. The developer, in our opinion, satisfied all of the criteria for that conditional use, and we believe that it's a, a strong zoning case. Yes, we were surprised. We think it's just flat wrong. Developers attempting to build affordable housing say they are running into more lawsuits trying to stop them. Amount of litigious nature to prevent affordable housing development is just ramping up. For the small city of Bexley, the mayor says he's trying to get ahead of the problem. We don't have land in the city to meet the demand for housing in Bexley. But others see the housing issue as something that shouldn't be built near them. The developer argues an apartment building, no matter who's living in it, that's poorly managed, will be a bad neighbor. But an apartment building that's managed well and managed in in cooperation and coordination with neighbors can be a great neighbor. That was Kevin Landers reporting. The mayor of Bexley says he expects a judge to render a decision on its appeal in about six to 12 months. Right now, all eyes are on the global food insecurity crisis. President Biden recently announced that he would put nearly $3 billion toward the issue. The funding will go toward buying agricultural tools and supplies. $150 million of the money will go toward the global food security program. We talked with U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown to find out more about how that funding will help our state. I think that the issue of 
of food scarcity is is still in our country and it's international and uh, we have a moral commitment and a practical commitment. I mean, I, I, um, I, I one of the things I've worked hardest on for 10 years and we've had success on it, but not, we got to continue it. The child tax credit. I know the child tax credit has made a huge difference. It's brought 40 percent of kids out of poverty. It's made a huge difference in making sure kids have enough to eat. Uh, one a, a friend of mine said uh, when it comes to moderate and low income people that the rent eats first. When ki- when parents have to choose, I, if I don't pay the rent, we're going to lose our apartment. So I'm going to deny my kids something else. Something else is often or sometimes nutritious food. And that's that's just unacceptable. And in, in, in this great state that I've called home my whole life and that in this wonderful country. Still to come, a look at what's happening in Ohio to promote literacy and close the achievement gap. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Between business life, social life, and her best bud, Loki, Beverly has a lot to focus on, especially while fighting Stargard, a blinding retinal disease. But she's not fighting alone. For 50 years, the Foundation Fighting Blindness has funded research into treatments and cures for blinding retinal diseases providing hope to people with vision loss. And for Beverly, winning the fight means focusing on what's closest to her. The Foundation Fighting Blindness. Together, we're winning. Help us end blinding diseases at fightingblindness.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. New federal study results reveal students across the country fell behind in reading during the pandemic. Much of the evidence points to children who spent most of the time learning remotely during that 2020-2021 school year. There's a note of promise coming from what's called Second and Seven. The foundation is based in Columbus and founded in 1999 by former Ohio State University football players Luke Fickle, Ryan Miller, and Mike Vrabel. Names you all know. Well, I talked with the executive director, Amy Hoying, and an educator from the Southwest City Schools, and they say programs like Second and Seven promote literacy and help close achievement gaps. We thought our mission is more critical than ever, and than ever. So we knew not only could we, you know, we didn't stop going into classrooms because of the pandemic. We were doing virtual readings. We had to find those kids wherever they were, find the teachers and tell the teachers and tell the principals like Dr. Lardson, like how can second and seven support you? We have the materials. We have inspirational role models because there was so much that was scary and uncertain. We've got a plan. We do have the resources through our district resources through programs like Second and Seven. We will address the fluency issues. We will address the phonemic awareness. We will address where those foundational pieces might not be as successful right now, but we have a plan. So hit pause, give us time as the educators to do our job, to partner with parents, to work with those children, to greet them. As Amy said, they come in and they're sponges. They'll soak it up. The Second and Seven Foundation promotes reading by providing free books and positive role models to second grade students who are in need of that encouragement. And it also helps young, inspiring athletes in the community to pay it forward. And we're talking athletes from all sports. Again, Second and Seven. Thank you so much for joining us here today on Face the State. We wish you a great week. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. Here's Tracy with a preview of what you can see this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Good morning. Coming up on Face the State, presidential pardons 
on pot. We are taking a look at what President Biden's plan means for marijuana prosecutions at a state level. Midterm elections are right around the corner. I'm talking with Senator Sherrod Brown about some key races and the fight for power in the nation's capital. And we will take a look at how a local company is making it easier for families to afford rent. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Coming up in just a couple of minutes, Dwayne Casares, CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. Does homeowners insurance cover flooding in a hurricane? Here's Brandon Lewis with a Verify report. The National Hurricane Center said Hurricane Ian brought life-threatening storm surge when it came ashore in Florida, leading to flooding in many parts of the state. While many people in the storm's path have traditional homeowners or renters insurance, some policies may not help rebuild after a flood. So let's verify. Do homeowners and renters insurance policies typically cover flood damage from hurricanes? Our sources are the Florida Division of Emergency Management, the Insurance Information Institute, Federal Emergency Management Agency, and insurance companies Allstate and Amica. Homeowners insurance is a way to repair or rebuild your home after something bad happens. Homeowners insurance, along with renters, also helps cover the cost to replace your belongings. Typically, when you buy a policy, the insurance companies will give you a detailed list of events that they cover or tell you you're covered for all events except those they specifically exclude. All of our sources say standard homeowners and renters policies typically exclude coverage for flooding. Allstate says this includes flooding brought on by or as a result of a hurricane. So, no. Homeowners and renters insurance policies do not typically cover flood damage from hurricanes. Instead, you can purchase separate flood insurance from a private company or a policy that's backed by FEMA's National Flood Insurance Program. These policies usually require you to purchase them at least 30 days before they take effect. If you didn't buy coverage ahead of time, FEMA also offers some assistance to people who live in areas that receive a presidential disaster declaration. However, Florida's emergency management warns the average payout to Florida residents from FEMA is usually only about $5,000, which may not be enough for repairs. This compares to claims filed by people with separate flood insurance who receive an average of $29,000. Whether you are verify, I'm Brandon Lewis. The future depends on teachers. Every day, teachers are shaping our tomorrows, starting their students on journeys that will change the course of history. Right now, in a classroom somewhere in the United States, there's a teacher inspiring a future scientist who will make preventing pandemics their life's work, sharpening the mind of an aspiring environmentalist who will help combat climate change, and generating possibilities for a student who will be the first in their family to graduate college. It all starts with teachers who meet challenges with creativity, who reinvent education for the future who work towards a school system that lifts up every child, regardless of race, income, or zip code, and to enable the full potential of our students, our communities, and our country. Explore a career that leaves a legacy you can be proud of. Shape the future. Teach. Learn more and receive free support at teach.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is uh, Dwayne Casares. He's the, wow, it's been so long, Dwayne, I forgot who you were. He's the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. I COVID, I forgot who I am. I'm still foggy. <laughs> That's right, you, you had COVID. I did, yeah, like most people, I think, at this point. 
folks might be curious. You, you said to this point, maybe it's hopefully gotten watered down enough that you felt that it was kind of like a flu that lingered longer. Yeah, that's what it was for me. I mean, and I'm, I'm vaccinated and everything, but it, uh, yeah, it was just like a flu that was just um, that wouldn't go away. I didn't like losing my taste buds, and that did happen. Um, I actually cook, and I'm kind of a foodie guy, so that's my nightmare. I'd keep everything else. You know, I wouldn't keep the sniffles and cough. Don't take away my food. <laughs> <laughs> so you, as I said, are the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. What is that? We, <laughs> if you don't know by now, maybe you have COVID. It's been a long time, Dwayne. I forget. <laughs> We're a, a, a nonprofit social service agency that serves uh, Columbus area. We serve over 5,000 kids and families. We have a variety of counseling programs, so we offer mental health counseling on an outreach basis, meaning we do it in the homes or in the schools out in the community. Um, it eliminates transportation barriers and barriers to child care. We also have two after-school centers, um, one on Ohio Avenue on the east side and one in Kimberly Parkway on the far east side. And when it comes to this sort of thing that you do, we're talking about the big leagues here. Your organization won the 2022 Columbus Foundation Award. Yes, we did. Um, that was a shocker. Uh, we are honored. Honestly, Dave, I just think we have such a great uh, uh, staff, a group of staff at our agency who work so hard out there all the time. And I think, you know, a lot of awards that people get, whatever they are, the top 50, this or that, you know, you apply for them. That's it's. Uh, we all kind of know what, how that's played out. Um, but this isn't, and nobody applies for this. This is uh, the Columbus Foundation and their governance board um, choosing to recognize somebody. And so it was an honor to be recognized that way. And I, I truly believe it honors the work of our staff. It just really does uh, honor everything that they do every day out there in the community. It is great. I mean, when you look at the Columbus Foundation, the work they do and the research they put into the work they do, and and all you have to do is look at some of the stuff they put online and how much they filter through everything and put a lot of effort into what they do. And and winning that award is a big deal. Yeah, it really was. You know, the day I went to go get the, or they had the ceremony, I told my wife, uh, you know, I've been here for 32 years. This may be the most significant recognition our agency's ever received, and I meant that. Uh, Columbus Foundation has been very, very good to our agency, and, and they're excellent at what they do, and uh, this they really do represent so many people in Columbus, and Columbus has such a giving uh, community behind it, and all the foundations that they uh, take care of at the Columbus Foundation and distribute money to uh, uh, those in need out in the community. It's absolutely wonderful work. Now, over the last few months, uh, once in a while, we talk about this big project that you have going on on the east side. How's that going? It's good. We actually, in June, we broke ground. So this is our uh, Crittenden Center. So, uh, you know, our agency's name is Directions for Youth and Families, but we actually merged with Crittenden Family Services about 12 years ago. Crittenden started in Columbus in 1899 as a home for unwed mothers. Um, so they used to have a place on uh, East Main Street, which makes uh, the merger and us um, the fourth oldest, I believe, nonprofit in the Columbus area. So we are building a new center out on the east side. We have a center there now on Kimberly Parkway. Um, It's only about 4,000 square feet. We are building a 24,000 square feet facility. um, to. It's a a community restoration model um, to help restore that community. Uh, And we broke ground in June. So, yeah, and it looks like uh, we're on target to open next June. So tell us about the kind of services that are going to be provided out there. Yeah, you know, 
actually modeled when we first moved out there. We knew we were going to build an after-school and summer program, so it was going to be much like our Ohio Avenue Center, uh, which offers dance and music and and fitness and food and leadership development and homework help and computer labs. It's just a variety of stuff for kids to go after school um, and, and summer programming as well. The more that we were out there, the more we realized that other than the churches in that area, uh, there were very few to no services for that community. Um, that community at that time was uh, tied with Linden um, for number one in infant mortality. You know, a lot of people know about Linden. Nobody knows about Kimberly Parkway. They didn't tie anyone in evictions. They're number one all by themselves. Um, a, a crime and poverty continue to rise. This used to be a thriving black community. I'm sure there's listeners who remember Eastland Mall. It used to be the mall to go to. Uh, when I first moved to Columbus, that's where everybody went to go to the movies. Um, you know, since Eastland Mall has, has uh, kind of gone away, as well as Toys R Us, uh, that community just kept uh, deteriorating. And we plotted all the parks and rec centers, all the... Um, uh, libraries in Columbus. We looked at uh, just the other social service agencies that typically are in neighborhoods. There were 78 of those entities, and Kimberly Parkway had none. Um, so we knew we couldn't just build an after-school center that would be putting a Band-Aid on an open, bleeding wound. Um, so we started on this march to develop a different type of community center. It was modeled after the trauma-informed community building model in San Francisco um, that uh, uh, Bridge Housing Corporation developed. Um, they actually presented that model uh, at the invitation of the Columbus Foundation several years ago here in Columbus. We had already been working with Bridge. Um, prior to the pandemic, Bridge agreed to um, turn all their research over to us. They thought our model was better. Uh, we incorporated the uh, five social determinants of health. We've embraced Annie E. Casey's two-gen model. We call it a multi-gen model um, and our own cultural assessment and had developed a community restoration model. So we say it's, it's restoration. This is not about transforming communities, and it certainly isn't about gentrification, um, which is typically these are the things that happen when people try to change communities. We believe this to be a restorative justice issue. It is about restoration. Communities should not be uh, without any type of services. So when it falls on hard times, um, there's nothing to turn to. We believe communities can heal themselves. Um, they just need some support. And to date, uh, we now have 23 nonprofit partners who are going to join us uh, in helping restore this community. Wow. So when you talk about gentrification, that's it, it, maybe it, and maybe I'm not exactly right on this, but a simplified way of explaining that would be when you turn a community on its head and make it all of a sudden kind of cool and trendy, and it starts to price out the people who live there all their lives. Yeah, and and there's been some models that have even been more aggressive than that. You know, like working with all the uh, management companies to start evicting families that are doing certain things. So now then that frees up property, and and it it, it essentially becomes unaffordable to people who live in those communities, um, particularly renters. So uh, it's just it's displacement. So you're putting them. You're you're basically saying, okay, we're going to make your community better, and you can't live here. And and that is, uh, wow, that is just not human. That, that is so uh, it's so anti what us in the human service field would say that you should treat those that we serve. Um, so our model really is to keep everyone intact. If anything, um, like addressing the uh, whole um, uh, uh, eviction thing, um, 
we don't want people to be evicted. We want to work with management companies to stabilize the people who live in these places so they don't have to evict them, to get them jobs that have, uh, you know, a living wage, to address their emotional well-being and, uh, um, uh, you know, to help them be, you know, more stable as a functioning family and, and remain in, in the community that they've always lived in. So that has been the goal from the beginning with this model. We started by taking groups of moms from that area, 74% of the households in that area are single-parent households, most of them women, and took them to our Howe Avenue Center so that they could be part of the planning process, so they could dream of what a new center would be, and we allowed them to direct the process of what do you need, what don't you need, um, what do you want to make sure we make available for you, so um, that, that we took a different approach when we decided to develop the Crittenden Community Center. And that's something that you and I have kind of talked a little bit off the air about that, that you think that sometimes nonprofits that try to serve these communities are missing the mark. Yeah, you know, I think that maybe in a sense their mission is in the right place, but you can't just go into a community, open up shop, and then say, okay, come use us. Um, and, and if you don't use us, why aren't you? Well, uh, we got to stop throwing things at people and start working with them. They need to be a part of their own change process. Actually, if they are a part of it, that becomes sustainable. We, we're not there to foster dependency or to enable people. We want them to be able to stand on their own. And like I said, we do believe that communities can heal themselves. They just need some support. And part of that is having them work with you in the entire development of, of, of what you're going to put into their communities so that there is some ownership there. Uh, and that is a, the approach that we have taken in Kimberly. Talking with Dwayne Casara, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. So in that neighborhood, the, the uh, Eastland Mall area, Kimberly Parkway, let's take a, a six or eight-year-old kid who lives in that area, boy and girl. You mentioned that there are you know, not a lot of services and and amenities that that most neighborhoods have. So what is it that you're hoping to change in the lives of that six or eight year old? Well, for one thing, it's to have a safe place for them to go to. So one of the biggest things when we were talking to moms, they said many things um, and, and, and helped us understand a few things. But even with the small center that we have there right now, we are operating a center there, but it's very small. We were filled up um, by the second day that we opened. You know, they said, they have told us, they don't know what they would have done. The, the one mother talked about that um, she moved here from Youngstown. She had to because of some uh, bad things going on in her life there. She needed to have a change. Uh, she didn't know anybody here. She got a job, but she didn't know what she was going to do with her child. Um, she said it's just not safe. The community isn't safe. Uh, thank goodness that I have a place that I know cares about my kid that will help them with their homework, um, that will you know give some activities to do, and I don't have to worry about what's happening um, because I have this place. And she says, I don't know what I would have done without you. You know, another mother had said my son was gunned down on these streets 10 years ago. Um, I've been trying to get services out there since then and said, um, are you people angels? That is the kind of narrative that has to change. No one should be seen as an angel because we are offering basic needs that all communities have. So, um, you know, it's just when you start listening to the voices of the people in the community, it has a direct impact on what it is that you're going to do and how you're going to go about it. Once you get that center up and at full operation, what sorts of things are you going to be doing there? Well, there's everything. Like I said, we, we're going to hit the whole uh, um, five social determinants of health. So we'll be working, uh, like with Columbus Works, on, on 
jobs and uh, workforce development, although we're going to have a little twist to it. We're going to start um, with emotional regulation and stabilization of addressing uh, unmet uh, uh, trauma issues in individuals so we can stabilize them so that they can be effective in the jobs. Uh, we are going to have food. We'll be working, and we have always worked with uh, Middle Ohio Food Bank, uh, but Local Matters will be assisting on that. We are um, looking at housing. You know, Homeport was one of the first people on board. Uh, we'll be looking at senior services, so Catholic Social Services. Um, we Honestly, we went to all the partners. We don't have to be the answer to everything, um, and, and we do mental health counseling and after-school programming. I don't need to go out of my wheelhouse. I just need to partner with the other people who this is what they do. So one of the big things that happened was the building initially was $6.6 million. We had raised six point two, and then the pandemic hit. Um, I think most people out know there that uh, two years later after the pandemic, there's the supply chain is completely uh, um, difficult and challenging. Our building went from 6.6 to $9.8 million, so um, that was hard to swallow, wow. and those were our new numbers last June. So we needed to, well, we had to raise the rest of the money, number one, but we didn't want to delay the project, so we decided to piecemeal it, that we were uh, going to build the main building so we can get those services started, and um, the gym, which really is an, an important piece uh, uh, for our center, we had to take that out of the drawings and just wait until we raised enough money to put it back in. We likened it to building a house without a kitchen. Um, nobody would do that. So, but we really, the, the community's waited too long. We needed to move forward with the building. Um, and then walked in the wonderful people uh, uh, from the Wolf Foundation. And man, it makes me emotional even just thinking about it because it was stunning. Um, uh, Columbus Foundation worked out for us to meet with them and um, they came in with a $2 million gift and um, and we were able to put our gym back in. So we will build a, be building a house with a kitchen, if you will, uh, because of the wonderful generosity of the Wolf Foundation. Um, it's truly awesome. Man, that's fantastic. And that's a life changer for kids out there. Uh, it certainly is. You know, it, it is. You know, we've even had board members who have said things, you know, I wish when I was growing up I had a center like that in my neighborhood. Um, I wish we truly do believe all children should have palaces to go into, and um, we, we were very intentional about the building and the way it looks. We actually, uh, because of the makeup of the community, we wanted it uh, to almost have a gender responsive architectural design. Um, we were successful in doing that. We picked the right people to partner with. Design Group has has worked with us in building this building. Um, uh, the construction company, everything. Has has been very important to us uh, and everything and, and, and dotting I's and crossing T's and, and vetting people who um, uh, uh, have diverse workforces and appreciate uh, uh, um, all genders and orientations and, and, and people of color. So um, these are everything that's been very, very thoughtful on what we've done in moving forward with this project. You know, it's kind of neat because it does uh, set you up for being kind of the anchor for that neighborhood. Yeah, the um, and, and the other thing is we've actually made this model intentionally to be transferable. So uh, we made it so that it would be transferable to other communities. We uh, actually, the uh, Pew Foundation and the Mill Bank had invited me to speak about the model in St. Louis. Uh, there are four states uh, present, and all four of them want the model. Um, we, we've been contacted by five different cities, most recently Ottawa, Canada, who um, uh, heard about this model being a social justice initiative um, 
actually a, a, a doctor there who's um, in the ER department at Ottawa's uh, public hospital. He heard about the model and he called me and asked if he, I could do a podcast. Well, I don't, he's a social influencer and I didn't know what that meant. I thought it meant <laughs> um, like talking to the Kardashians. So I called my son who laughed at me and then looked him up and said, Dad, he's got over a million followers. Do the podcast. So I did. Um, uh, and Ottawa, Canada wants the model too. So we want it to be transferable. We want this to be the way we go about assisting communities um, in a community restoration project. That's uh, excellent. If people want more information about what you're doing out there, do you have that on your website? No, you ain't stealing my stuff, Dave. Come on. (laughs) Actually, uh, we're still in the process of putting all of our steps together with it. Um, uh, We actually, I have to keep telling people, the model's not done yet. For the most part, it is, uh, we're still working through a few things to coordinate 23 nonprofits to assist in in, uh, um, helping a a support a community um, is another challenge, but uh, um, we're working through those parts of it as well. It's it's a unique model. It's not like we're charging rent to anybody. I think when nonprofits then can't afford that, then the community loses those services, and and we got to be smarter about um, how we utilize our spaces and share it with other nonprofits so that the people we serve benefit from it um, and, and still manage it from a financial standpoint. I think we got it. So uh, it'll all be available probably around the time that we do the groundbreaking. Um, there are parts of it that I think are, are in newsletters that we have on our webpage, but uh, more to come. Yeah. In fact, I'm looking at the website now, and there is a little bit about it. It says uh, there's a link for a groundbreaking celebration of the Crittenden Community Center. And when you click on that, there are some uh, photos and elements of what you're doing out there. Um, yeah. Before we let you go, and since the holidays are getting here a lot quicker than anybody wants them to, <laughs> you've got things that are going on in terms of making the holidays a little better for, for some of your clients, right? Yeah, Friends Helping Families is our holiday like gift drive so people in the community can adopt families. And um, so we make sure that during the holidays, uh, uh, families, particularly during these times where it's been uh, really hard on some families, um, We'll be able to get gifts and things like that. I'll tell you something we did uh, a couple years ago, and we still have a part of it. Uh, we will allow uh, people, people who are donating to designate if they want to do that. Uh, we started putting to, together packages where we would allow to give the money to families. Um, as long as you know, we vet the families, we want to make sure there's not somebody who's going to take the money and you know buy something illegal with it. Or we, we I mean, uh, the truth of the matter is, we work with families that have uh, uh, challenging people who are substance abusers and things like that. So we wouldn't put them in this pool, but other ones um, who have shown you know great responsibility, they're just working through some hard things. It's great when they can buy their own kids gifts and not have someone. So we started doing that. It has gone over so well uh, with the families that we, we have done this with. And um, I'll tell you, one of them, uh, we did it with a young mom, um, and it was during COVID, uh, and one of our workers said, um, so after I told her she's going to get this amount of money and what does she think she do, she thought of all these things for her kid, um, clothes and, and, and stuff like that. Um, she said, then she gave me this very... Uh, um, non-appropriate COVID hug. <laughs> she said, and then when we, we, they met outside because, you know, it was COVID, so you, we were staying out of enclosed spaces. She said, when I went to leave, she went inside and closed the door, and I heard the biggest scream on the other <laughs> side of the door. Um, so it really helped some of our families, and I just think it's great. 
See, and that goes right back to what you were talking about with what you're doing on the east side. It's rather than us imposing our ideas, our gifts, let them decide. You know, and, and all of that, Dave, is just centered around being respectful. It truly is treating people with respect and, and recognizing the humanity and, and everybody and, and, and all of us of what we're trying to do and, and trying to make our lives better. So um, it actually it, it was an idea that we had a few years ago. It was actually a friend of mine in my golf league who uh, wanted to try it, and then that's what we did, and it had such positive results um, that we have kept that to be a little part of Friends Helping Families. Great. Uh, Dwayne Casares, he's the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. If uh, folks want more information about your agency, Dwayne, where do they find it? They can check us out at DFYF, as in Directions for Youth and Families, DFYF.org. Great. Dwayne, good to talk to you again. Thanks a lot. Good talk to you, Dave. Thanks. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.